Thank you, Josh. I, I, I just echo what he said about David's book. David, uh, uh, David's a pastor and a counselor uh, near me in Michigan, and uh, we're uh, pen pals and, and corresponding buddies, and I've told him uh, many times just how helpful his book has been to, to me and to many other people uh, who have read it, so I would definitely commend that resource to you. Uh, we're in our final session together, uh, so if you have made it through this far and uh, you are still attentive, well done. <laughs> you are doing good. I just want to encourage you uh, with that. Um, in this session, we're going to be talking about navigating depression with your child and teen, and, and maybe a little carrot that you can kind of insert into that is depression and anxiety. So a lot of what we'll talk about today, I'll move back and forth between talking about depression and anxiety because both of those two things, especially for children and teens, uh, like I said, I think last evening in some of my introductory comments, they tend to go together. Uh, meaning, man, am I struggling with depression uh, because I'm just so anxious and overwhelmed or am I anxious and overwhelmed because I feel so depressed. And so when you are talking to your teen, a lot of times uh, those two issues kind of bleed together. So where appropriate, we can make some distinctions, but a lot of the things that we'll talk about uh, will be applicable for both your children and teen, whether or not they're experiencing uh, depression or anxiety. Let's talk about uh, depression. Again, depression is uh, normally classified as a mental health mood disorder for adults. Uh, but that doesn't mean that children and teens can't struggle with it as well. Uh, the average onset age for teens uh, to experience depression or a depressive uh, episode is 14, which is fairly young. Um, but the earlier the onset of depression in children and adolescents oftentimes indicates that the battle later in life will become more protracted and severe as time goes on. There's an estimated 4.1 million adolescents ages 12 through 17 in the U.S. who had at least one major depressive episode. That number represents 17% of the U.S. population. So if you remember from some of our statistics last night, in adults, that number is 8.4, right? So you realize then, uh, in terms of children and adolescents, that number is more than double, right? 17% of the U.S. population ages 12 through 17 will experience one major depressive episode. The prevalence of major depressive episodes is higher amongst adolescent females than compared to males. And just wanna specifically draw your attention to that because females are at 25% compared to males at 9%. And again, those two numbers correlate a lot closer together for adults, but for children and teens, uh, teen girls, young women, uh, tend to experience depression and anxiety at, at much higher rates than their male counterparts. Uh, you can look at that chart there when we think about uh, the treatment options. The chart below there will help kind of show you a little bit in terms of what do teens do, how do they get help, uh, treatment with medication, treatment with therapy, treatment with both medication and therapy. But what I want to draw your attention to is that 60%, so roughly two-thirds of adolescents who struggle with depression don't receive treatment of any kind. They don't receive a medication, uh, they don't receive any type of mental health treatment, 60.1%. Now, that number has ticked down a little bit because when I uh, pulled this chart, it was in 2017. In 2020, that number went down a little bit to 58, but that's still pretty high, 
right? About uh, six out of 10 teenagers are not receiving treatment of any kind uh, for depression or for anxiety. Uh, over the past, I would say two or three years, depression used to be the number one reason why teens were seeking mental health counseling. That's actually changed. And uh, anxiety now is the number one reason why teens seek counseling. 51% of teens seek counseling because of anxiety, but depression is very close on its heels at 41%. So you can see both depression and anxiety are accounting for the significant majority of the drive for children and teens to be getting mental health counseling. What are some characteristics of depression in children and in adolescent? And these two charts here are just going to be helpful for you again, because the diagnostic criteria is going to look a little bit different for children and teens than it will for adults. So in that first chart, you see on the one uh, column, characteristics of depression in children. And then again, for many of you who have your children in school, what does it look like in school? Because a lot of the times when we're thinking about depression, anxiety, one of the places uh, that it will present will be in their school setting. So things like physical or somatic complaints, uh, increased irritability, difficulty concentrating on tasks or activities, uh, short-term memory impairments, uh, difficulty with planning, organizing, and executing tasks, uh, facial expressions, hypersensitivity, uh, poor performance and follow-through on tasks, inattention, forgetfulness, uh, separation anxiety from parents or caregivers, and then you can see then uh, correlating on the right-hand side just how some of those issues then might also be showing up at home. Uh, what does it look like in adolescence? And again, in that teen population, maybe 12 through 17, uh, decreased self-esteem, feelings of self-worth, mild irritability, negative perception of their past and present. We'll talk about that a little bit later in some of the practices, to some of the habits to practice. Uh, their, ability, their ability to cognitively process through things that are going on in their world uh, takes a significant hit in depression and anxiety. Uh, peer rejection. Peer rejection is a huge thing, especially for adolescents. Uh, any type of disruption within their social structures tends to be a significant catalyst uh, for increased uh, depression or experiences of anxiety, either uh, being rejected by a peer group, not being accepted into a peer group, not having a peer group, uh, lack of interest and involvement in previously enjoyed activities. So again, uh, that can be some of the behaviors that can be very puzzling to parents. So, hey, my kid really enjoyed this, and now suddenly, like, he doesn't want to try out for the basketball team. He's played basketball for, you know, the past six years, and now suddenly he, he doesn't want to go out for the team. Or, uh, man, you used to love art club, and like, why don't you want to stay after school and do that? And suddenly she, she doesn't want to do art club. Uh, sudden and lack of interest in involvement in previously enjoyed activities. Boredom, impulsive and risky behaviors, right? You'll see things like vaping, marijuana, certain drug use uh, uh, crop up in those later teen years, substance abuse, right? When we think about all of these different things, again, this isn't an authoritative list of where, you know, we're trying to check off boxes, but they're families of behaviors, right? They're families or symptoms of behaviors that if these types of things, as you kind of read through this list, were existing for prolonged periods of time, it probably would be good to reach out to someone and say, hey, could, could I just ask you a few questions? Could I bounce some things off you? Because we're seeing some of these behaviors, some of these symptoms in Bobby or in, in uh, Susie. What causes depression and anxiety, or at least what are some of the contributing factors at play? Again, uh, last night we tried to talk a lot about how depression and anxiety uh, don't have this one factor or this one cause. And I would say in a very similar way, it won't be surprising that in a similar way with children and adolescents, there's not just one single cause that tends to incite or provide a context for depression and anxiety. But there do tend to be certain contexts, or I would say certain 
certain areas, I, I think, that do provide a ripe environment uh, for children and teens to experience anxiety and depression. I'll give you six of those here, and uh, these are from a really helpful book uh, that uh, is by Jessica Thompson, which is in your footnotes there on how to help your anxious teen. She lists out some of these categories, and I've added one in extra. But the first category in this this might be a little bit hard because, again, we tend to want to not uh, maybe be self-aware or reflective, but parents. Parents play a significant role in their child or their adolescent's experiences with anxiety and depression. Uh, it can be uncomfortable to acknowledge, but we as parents oftentimes contribute to our children's struggle with depression and anxiety. Whether you're a helicopter parent, whether you're a bulldozer parent, uh, or a depressed parent or an anxious parent, family of origin plays a significant role. Uh, many studies have been done on parents themselves who struggle with anxiety or depression or who are helicopter parents or bulldozer parents, and rates of anxiety and depression do tend to correlate higher in homes where one of those things is present. Now, the encouraging thing, though, and I'll just offer this by way of encouragement, one of the encouraging things that we see with parents is not only can parents be a source or a context for their child's depression or anxiety, but on the other side of that, parents are typically the first people in their child or teen's life that can also help speak into experiences of depression and anxiety. And in fact, in one recent study, the parents' relationship with their children was the defining characteristic or the defining factor that helped ameliorate some of those symptoms. They, uh, in the study, they called it a parenting competency, just simply the ability for the parent to be aware, for the parent to be involved, for the parent to be loving. Again, all the things that we've talked about that, again, the gospel brings all these things to the forefront and says, yeah, what does it look like for you to faithfully love and disciple your children? What does it look like for you to bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Some of those practices, not that they can eradicate depression and anxiety in your child or teen, that they'll never struggle, but that those can be helpful components in helping your child uh, who is struggling with depression and anxiety. A second uh, context or a second category to help think through what causes depression and anxiety is academics. Academics are a significant pressure point for our children and our teens. A typical student in the U.S. will take 112 mandated standardized tests between pre-K and 12th grade, according to the Council of the City School Study. 50% of children ages 12 through 17 have over an hour of homework every single night. And again, I'm not if you're an educator here, I'm not making any comments about, you know, homework's bad or homework's good. Just simply saying that the amount of homework that children are coming home with now has been steadily increasing. And in fact, for grades 7 through 12, uh, over 60% of children uh, report having two or more hours of homework each night. So again, that might not sound a lot, but then if you pile on other extracurricular activities, right? You know, Bobby goes to school at 7 a.m. in the morning. He goes to practice, uh, football practice from uh, 4 to 6. He gets home. He eats dinner. He showers. Uh, he wants to watch some TV or play a video game and then maybe starts his homework around 9 o'clock. Uh, those types of patterns, right, can be significant context uh, for anxiety and depression, just the weight of academic expectations. Uh, right when I was in school and perhaps when you were in school, right, the need to get good grades was something probably that was stressed, but uh, we probably weren't hiring extracurricular tutors or going to tutors on Saturdays or, or stressing out about our grades as much as this generation is. I talked to a, a family just earlier this month, and 
their older teen who's a junior in high school is just experiencing some significant depression. And when they just began to describe their family life to me, he was involved in six different activities, sports, and on Saturdays, he was spending the entire bulk of his Saturday uh, with an SAT prep tutor. And so just as we begin to examine some of those different things, again, not that we just completely eliminate all those things, but just helping the parent understand how some of those weights of responsibility could be negatively impacting uh, their son's mental health. That brings us then to this third category or this third context is sports. 75% of all American families have at least one child playing an organized sport. 75%, that is a lot. That is a lot of families involved in extracurricular sports. It uh, roughly adds up to about 60 million children participating in youth sports. It is a $19 billion industry uh, in the U.S. The push and the rush to start children younger and younger in athletics is something that parents are facing on a consistent basis, right? When you're told that your sixth grade boy can't make the basketball team because he hasn't played in the rec and travel leagues from kindergarten to fifth grade, right? That can be discouraging and overwhelming. And so the push is, oh my gosh, we got to get Bobby in a rec and a travel in a YMCA league or a boys club league at, at, you know, by the time he can walk, right? He needs to be able to shoot a basket. And that can be a significant cause and pressure point for children. Now, please hear me rightly. If you have your kids in organized sports, that is okay. That's not a sin. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to blame uh, any parent out there. Just simply raise awareness how for all of these different things, when they begin to kind of come together, uh, can provide a context for anxiety and for depression. In fact, there's actually a subset of anxiety that more and more uh, mental health counselors are talking about as it relates to children called sports performance anxiety. And sports performance anxiety is where children and young teens are experiencing massive amounts of anxiety both before, during, and after their games, uh, before their games. Are they going to get off the bench? Are they going to get playing time? Did they practice hard enough? Are they going to remember the plays? Are they going to be a good teammate? Are they going to win this game? Will they make the playoffs? Will they make the next uh, game? Um, then you have parents and coaches and refs yelling at them. And then after the game, right after losses, just uh, huge feelings of guilt or I could have done better or why didn't I exceed or if I had just done this or if I just uh, sharpened up that shot or whatever it might be, that creates a significant load of sports performance anxiety that I know even in my own family, that's something that we have to talk about frequently as a family with girls who are in various sports. So academics, family, parents, sports. Next is sleep. Uh, sleep is a huge factor for children and teens. A phrase that you probably are hearing more and more about is what's called sleep hygiene, right? We talk a lot about physical hygiene, but something that uh, counselors and mental health practitioners are talking a lot more now about is what is your sleep hygiene like? Uh, what are you doing before you go to sleep? Uh, what kind of devices do you have in your room when you're going to sleep? Uh, how late do you go to sleep? When do you wake up? Do you wake up rested or do you wake up tired? And I would say, especially with children and teens, sleep hygiene is something that has to be addressed and prioritized. School-aged children ages 6 through 13 are recommended to get an average of 9 to 12 hours of sleep. 9 to 12 hours of sleep. And teens ages 13 to 18 are recommended to get an average of 8 to 10 hours of sleep. 9 to 12 for 6 through 13, 8 to 10 for teens 13 through 18. According to the National Sleep Foundation, you know how many children and teens are getting the right amount of sleep? 15%. Only 15%. That is a shockingly low statistic. 
Very few teens and very few children are getting the recommended amount of sleep that they need to be able to function. And again, sleep is not a magic cure-all, but it is a reminder, right, of who we are as embodied beings. Uh, You are not created and designed to live and to be awake 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We serve a God, Psalm 121, who does not slumber or who does not sleep, but that's never ascribed to us. Right? Part of being an embodied being and being created in the image of God is that you need sleep. I was talking with a family probably a few years ago, and they were experiencing a lot of behavioral issues with their son. The school was threatening expulsion with their son and just started asking some big picture questions. And, hey, you know, when does, you know, when does Tommy go to bed? And they said, well, he doesn't really have a bedtime. Tommy was 13. They said, Tommy kind of likes to stay up and play video games till 2 or 3 in the morning. And they said, it is just really hard to get him out of bed in the morning for school. And, you know, they had this, this puzzled look as to why, why was that a struggle? Why was he not performing well in school? And why was it so hard to get him on the bus at seven? I said, well, like, it seems like he's staying up really late. Have you guys ever considered, you know, changing that, moving the TV out of the room, reassessing his relationship with the video games? And, and the parents said, well, if we do that, he's going to get really mad at us. He's going to get really angry with us. And it, and it was a fascinating insight, right, into, again, all of us as parents have probably been in similar states of that, where we have created certain patterns, we have facilitated certain patterns, and then the end result, we realize, oh boy, like this has gotten, this has gotten out of my control. And so the ability to now reset all of that is going to be infinitely difficult than if on the front end at ages six or seven, we say, okay, here's what a healthy relationship looks like. Uh, to media consumption in our home. Uh, Hey, me giving you a bedtime as a nine-year-old, that's not me being an old-fashioned parent or being a mean parent. That's me actually loving you and actually fulfilling my role to you uh, as somebody who God has stewarded you uh, into my care. So sleep hygiene is definitely something that has to be addressed. I'd say especially for for children who are experiencing high amounts of anxiety. Uh, Are you letting them keep their phones in their room? Are they watching uh, large amounts of TV beforehand? And the type of TV, is it very stimulating? Are they seeing uh, graphic amounts of violence or things that are going to be keeping them up at night? Uh, Do you allow them to drink high amounts of caffeine before they go to bed, right? Just simply thinking through, okay, maybe two hours before bed, we have to address media, what types of things uh, you you're taking in, right? I mean, pop's not bad, but you probably aren't, shouldn't be drinking Red Bulls, right? You know, right before you go to bed. And again, some of those things sound somewhat obvious to us, but it's little changes and factors like that that are much, are very much within our control that can significantly positively impact our children. Another category is this, is just social activism. Social activism in modern identity and in a post-Christian culture where our children and our teens are facing an immense pressure to create, maintain, and promote their own identity, uh, that, that's a lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure on six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, right? Part of the way that teens and children now have to create an identity is that they have to stand out from the pack. They have to make a big splash. They have to make a significant contribution to society. Uh, I'm a big reader of Time Magazine, and uh, Time Magazine, I've been a subscriber for years, and you guys will, uh, if you also subscribe to Time, you'll know that every year they would release an issue, uh, the 100 most influential adults in the world. And it'd be all of these stories of, you know, these 100 adults across the world that are doing these amazing things uh, in our world. 
And probably a few years ago, Time started releasing another issue. It was the 100 most influential people under 40. Uh, and then another issue came out, the 100 most influential people in their 20s. And about two years ago, they released another issue of the 100 most influential children uh, in the world. And if you want to feel really bad about yourself, uh, you should read the issue. Because when you read the immense pressure uh, that our children face, you realize that the post-Christian culture that we live in is shaping and informing them in ways that oftentimes are unseen. Here's one example. This is Cash Daniels. Cash is 12 years old, and he lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It says, Daniels spends several hours every day cleaning up cans and bottles in the rivers near his home with other teen environmentalists in Chattanooga. Together, Cash and his friends have collected more than one ton of aluminum cans, nearly 1,000 cans a week for a year. His goal for 2022 is even more ambitious. In January, he co-founded a club called the Cleanup Kids with his best friend, Ella Grace. Ella Grace is a fellow homeschool student who lives in Canada. The project's mission is this. They want to encourage kids to pick up one million pounds of trash across the globe before the end of the year. And then they interview him a little bit more about how they're going to do this. But at the end of the article, I found this statement to be so insightful. It says, in truth, the burden to save the planet has landed on children like him. Cash says this, kids may be a small percent of the population, but we are 100% of the future, and I can save the world, right? Now, again, there's nothing wrong with him wanting to be industrious. I don't think it's a good thing that he's wanting to clean up trash, but the end goal of where that gets to where the fate of the world literally for Cash, 12-year-old, that weighs on his shoulder, right? Do you think that would be a context where anxiety and depression could grow out of, right? I don't know what you were doing at 12, but I was not collecting a million pounds of trash, and I was not thinking about saving the world. I was thinking about what I was going to have for lunch or for breakfast at school, right? And all that does is it, it just reminds us our children are growing up in a different time. And what that does, hopefully, is not create a sense of cynicism or activism on our part, but hopefully creates opportunities for empathy and compassion. To say, you know what, I, I didn't grow up facing all of the things that you faced as a kid or as a teen. Tell me about that. What are you facing? What are some of those pressures and struggles that you're encountering? That brings us then to our last context or category, and it's this, social media and technology. You might ask yourself, where, where is Cash Daniels getting some of these expectations? And I would say a significant amount of those expectations, I think, are shaped and promoted and engaged on social media and technology. In a recent study of social media consumption, children, or teens rather, ages 13 through 18, spent an average of nine hours of time on social media. Nine hours. I'm like, I, kids are going to school for nine hours. I can't imagine them also then concurrently being on social media for that amount of time. Children eight through 12 years, uh, 12 years of age are spending an average of six hours a day on social media or technology. Now, you would think that with children and teens spending roughly six to nine hours a day, that it must be something that they really like, right? This is an activity that they really enjoy. If I'm gonna give nine hours of my life to it, but guess what? Only 10% of children and teens say that being on social media is their favorite part of the day. 10%. 10%. So what that immediately tells you is the people who are behind all of these various social media sites and in some of these organizations, right, there's something going on. There's a manipulation. There is a creation of algorithms that is engaging the minds and the hearts of our teens and our children in a way where people don't even like it and enjoy it, but they are still returning to it. And again, 
I'm not advocating that you go throughout your phone or disconnect from technology, but simply to be aware of it. Be aware that it is impacting your child's mental health. Ultimately, all of these factors, whether it's academics, sports, sleep, social media and technology, all of them ultimately help push us to the heart, ultimately help push us to understanding what's going on below the surface. There are opportunities for ongoing conversation with your child. So in the time that we have, I want to go through, again, similar to what we did in the last session, what are some helpful and thoughtful ways that we can help our kids and teens who are struggling with depression and anxiety? And we'll go through these, and again, some of these things will feel somewhat repetitive and familiar because uh, oftentimes what's good for us as adults no surprise is also going to be good for our children. So here's the first one. I just put listen and follow Scripture's example. Listen and follow Scripture's example. And what I mean by that is that more often than not, what we consistently see is that when God is telling us to not be afraid, when God is telling us to not be anxious, immediately following that is always a promise of His presence. Isaiah 41.10 says, Do not fear for I am with you. Philippians 4, 5, before we ever get to do not be anxious about anything, the phrase at the very beginning is what? The Lord is at hand. Psalm 94, 17 through 19, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the anxieties of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. So part of our parenting then, and part of our discipleship as parents, is both to model and embody the non-anxious presence of the Lord to our children in difficult and anxious times. The Lord draws near to us. He brings comfort and sustainment. And so one of the ways that you help, one of the ways that you image a God who draws near to us is you do that. You get near to your kid and you embody non-anxious physical presence to them. If we were plotting this out in terms of a, a conversation of how you might then provide that presence, how you might draw that child's gaze to the Lord, uh, I encourage parents to simply do what we call breath prayers. What are prayers that can be said to the Lord in moments of anxiety and depression that can be simply said in one breath? God, help me. Lord, I need you. Jesus, draw near to me. God, I'm struggling, right? We don't have to pray these long, drawn-out prayers. Simply training your child that from the moment we feel discomfort, from the moment that we feel our world is disordered, we immediately want to draw near to the Lord. Ed Welch writes this. He says, the rhythm of our journey is simple. You speak and God listens. God speaks and you listen, right? That's the rhythm that we see in the Psalms. And, and Welch will later say this, which I think is such a good mark and a good reminder for all of us. He says, in my, in my 30 to 40 years of the Christian life, he says, I want the time between when I experience trouble to the time that I cry out to God for help, I want that to get shorter and shorter and shorter right? So when we're first starting off in the Christian life, right, we think, okay, we got this. We can manage this on our own. And, you know, maybe it takes us a couple of hours or even a couple of days to cry out to the Lord for help. But those of you who are seasoned saints, right, you know, no, when I experience trouble in my world, my first stop is Lord help. Lord draw near to me. And what a beautiful way then that you can help disciple 
and train your children by modeling that and then teaching that to them then at a very young age, just finding some of those phrases. One of the phrases, at least, that we use in our home is Psalm 56, 9. Psalm 56 is all about fear and anxiety. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. But in Psalm 56, 9, there's this lovely line of simplicity where it says, this I know the Lord is for me. This I know the Lord is for me. So when my children are dysregulated, when my children are anxious, right, part of the movement of embodying non-anxious physical presence is simply coming up, putting my arm around their shoulder and saying, Ruby, do you know this? Do you know that the Lord is for you? Do you know that? Do you feel that? Do you trust that, right? There's a simplicity to how Scripture comes to us that I think is better than anything that the world has to offer us. So when we follow and when we mimic Scripture's example, it gives us a chance to not only fulfill the role that God gave to us, but also model that and teach our children at the same time. Similarly, practice good listening and empathy and question asking with children. You know, oftentimes you can make it a game with your child. Say, hey, let's play 20 questions. Like, you ask me something and I'll ask you some different questions. Uh, Empathy and question asking leads to connection, and connection leads to opportunities for Christ-like compassion. One of the frequent problems, though, when you're talking to your child is sometimes the answer that you get back from your child uh, isn't satisfactory. They don't give you an answer, right? The most popular answer that kids love to give to their parents is what? I don't know. I don't know. And I'll give you a little bit of a trick. It's not scientifically proven, but it works, at least in my experience, roughly 50% of the time. Uh, I'll say something like this. I'll say, okay, you don't know, but just if you did know, what do you think you would say? And it's a little, bit of a, a little bit of a conversational trick to get them to hypothetically imagine, but in reality, give me what's really going on. So, hey, like, what happened at school today? You just seem really down. Well, I don't know. Well, if you, if you did know, just kind of create a story for me. What, what, what did happen at school today that, that just has you weighed down? And I'd say roughly 50% of the time, they actually open up and they end up sharing it with you. My kids now know I've used that enough on them, though, that they've like seen through it and they're like, that's not going to work on us. My kids are like, stop counseling us, Dad. So I've got to find a different approach. Uh, Next, identify anxiety or depression's false interpretations or that odd filter, right? I put a variety of different things down there, these filters, these mindsets that our kids and our teens have. Sometimes what I think we fail to remember about our kids is we think that our children have the same cognitive and intellectual resources that we do to be able to understand lies that depression uh, might give to us or things that cause anxiety. You might say, well, you don't need to be worried about that. Like, that's fine. Like, all that's going to work out. And we like to project our own maturity or ability to handle difficult situations onto our children. But listen, friends, your, your eight-year-old daughter does not possess the same life experience and maturity that you have as an adult. So helping them identify some of those false interpretations, things like catastrophizing, right? Man, if I fail this exam, I'm never going to be able to go to college, and you're going to hate me. I'm going to be living in your basement for the rest of my life. Okay, take, take a deep breath. Like, I, I don't think that's what's going to happen, you know, on this uh, second grade reading exam. You know, like, I think you might be, you know, making this into maybe more than it is. Can we talk about that? Uh, things like false extremes, right? Just only seeing things in black or white, right? You guys just expect me to be perfect all the time, don't you? I, I'll never be as good as my other siblings, Jumping to conclusions, right? Expecting that a particular outcome is certain. So they might come home and say, man, my teacher hates me. 
everybody hates me. And you might say, well, why do you think that? Well, you know, I was supposed to be line leader this week, and now Sam is, and not me. Okay, well, right, they've, what have they done? They've taken a data point, and then they've immediately jumped to a conclusion, right? And so helping them say, okay, uh, I understand that's how you might feel, and man, like, I, I'm, I'm sad for you. You're not line leader this week, and you've been looking forward to that, but let's think out loud together. Do you think that there might be some other things that maybe you don't know about that might have caused your teacher to pick Sam over you? Could we think out loud about that? Things like generalizations, right, where they assume negative things about everybody in terms of how they're being viewed, or nearsightedness, where they can only focus on what's right in front of them, or mind reading, right? Maybe your kid's just silent in a meal, and you know everything's going on at home, you're getting food on the table, you're trying to help the other kids, and suddenly they blurt out to you, does anybody care about me? Don't you guys know I've had a really hard day at school? kind of taking it back and so I didn't I didn't know how can I read your mind I just thought you were being quiet uh, false shoulds or false senses of responsibility where uh, children and teens can take on responsibility that's not their responsibility uh, you know nobody in my study group is pulling their weight so I'm just going to do this whole project on my own or I should just go back over that exam guide to make sure I have everything perfect for tomorrow's test, right? These false senses of responsibility or false shoulds that are not, that haven't been properly explained or laid out. Or emotional reasoning, again, just uh, being overwhelmed or overtaken by their emotions. And so towards that end, one of the things I like to do, especially with younger children, are what I call uh, feeling pies or feeling pie charts. Uh, and we do a lot of those in my home. Again, having four girls, we talk a lot about feelings in my home. And uh, I have my permission to share these with, uh, with all of you guys. I've done these with my kids all the time. But it's a really easy exercise. All you need is a piece of paper and some markers. And uh, what I'll do with my kids on, on a given day, and we'll do it all together as a family because I want them to know, hey, we're all in this together. I'll say, I just want you to draw a pie, and I want you to divide it into sections or spaces, and then I want you to describe to me what feeling or emotion you might be feeling. And what it does is it gives you a way spatially to help understand what's going on below the surface. So this is my oldest daughter's, and this was... She was going through a time where she was having some friend drama and some problems, and so on her, she put, man, this, can you see, this is a, a pretty significant section. She feels insecure, uh, she feels nervous, she feels overwhelmed, and she feels jealous, right? And I thought all of those things, those are fascinating insights. And again, there was a little bit of good. She, this little sliver right here, which is, again, I'm not a math teacher, so I don't know if that's like a, a tenth of the pie or whatever, she, but that she felt thankful. So you can see that she's trying to balance out some of those negative emotions. But when I read this and I saw that and I interacted with her, I said, thank, thank you so much for sharing this with me, right? You've, you've been a little bit irritable at home the past week, but this helps me understand why a little bit more. Right? You've had this relationship which you've enjoyed for a long time that's now maybe not as strong as you want it to be. Um, let me show you this. This is, uh, this is my second daughter right here. And what do you immediately notice about this one? I mean, it is absolutely perfect. I mean, again, we've got perfect eighths right here. And my second daughter uh, is very much like me. She wants to hold all of her emotions in. She wants to master them. She does not want to show emotion. And she is a tough nut to crack. And so when she put all of this out, it totally made sense to me. Because listen to what she put. Happy, calm, 
powerful, jealous, sad, mad, scared, joyful. And all of those emotions are living in perfect harmony in her heart and in her life. And uh, I said, Riley, man, like that's a, I mean, you're feeling a lot of things. And, you know, thank you for sharing this. But what is this? This is a way for her to show me what's going on in her heart, how she's managing some of those things. Uh, this is my youngest daughter. And again, what you notice from it is just the handwriting. The portions are not as even. Um, and the, the level of how she describes emotions are much more rudimentary, right? So she says, nice, funny, sad, happy, thankful. And then to this day, it looks like it says balky. I don't know what balky is in terms of an emotion. But again, that made sense to me for a six-year-old girl to describe to me what's going on, the level or the way that she describes emotions is going to be very accessible. Happy, sad, thankful, right? And you get a little bit older and some of these emotions, they increase in terms of descriptiveness. I feel, I feel insecure, right? I feel jealous. This is a simple exercise that you can do with your kids. If you have paper and some markers, it's a wonderful way to draw your child out and then to connect with some of those emotions to say, Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, uh, when I was your age, I remember a time in my own life where, man, a friendship didn't go how I want, and I, and I felt really insecure too. I felt really insecure, and I felt, I felt jealous about that. Um, tell me about how that's affecting you, right? Again, it's an opportunity to create connection and conversation. Uh, talk, about circles, uh, talk about circles of responsibility. Uh, this is a big thing that we do with children and teens, again, because it's a visual, it's a diagram, and we can draw this out on a piece of paper. Uh, what we do is we help children understand what they are able to control, what areas they influence, but then ultimately what things have to be entrusted to the Lord. And uh, if you're saying, okay, well, where's the scriptural basis for this? In some ways, this nested circle diagram is simply a pictorial way to describe what David says in Psalm 131, where he says, my eyes are not going to be raised too high. I'm not going to get myself involved in things too great or difficult for me. I'm like a weaned child, right? I am going to rest in the Lord I'm going to submit to him. I'm going to be responsible for what I'm responsible for, but everything else has to be entrusted to the Lord. Now, what do, we, what do children and teens normally do? What do we normally do? What do we normally do with that inner circle? Whoosh, we love to expand it out, right? We think that we have way more control than we actually do. And what we actually do then is we fail to entrust critical areas of our life over into the Lord. And so oftentimes our teens and our children are overwhelmed with how much they perceive that they are in control over without realizing how much of their lives have to be entrusted to the Lord. So in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, again, another way that gives voice to these circles, right? The author says, trust in the Lord with some of your heart, uh, lean on some of your understanding, and in the end, all of your ways are going to work out great. No, that's, that's not what it says, but that's kind of like our paraphrase on a given day. But the truthfulness of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is this. Trust in the Lord with what? With all of your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, but in what? In some of your ways? In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Helping your child and teen realize, okay, what has God specifically called you to do? Specifically, what has he called you to do? And everything else outside of that, it has to be entrusted to the Lord, Right? And as parents, right, there are so many things where we realize, man, the things that we thought that we could control, ultimately we can't, right? Parents wish, I wish that I could control my children's behavior at times. And on a given day, on a daily basis, I have to submit that to the Lord, 
right? I have a duty to train up my children in the way that they should go. I have a responsibility to teach and talk and train them. But ultimately, their behaviors, those aren't in my area of control. They might be in my area of influence, but they're not in my area of control. And sometimes parenting goes awry in a skew because we actually believe that we own our children and that we control our children. So when they don't do what we want or they don't give us the desired outcome, it, it, uh, it can unsettle us and it can cause us to get dysregulated on our own. Finally, paying attention to their bodies, paying attention to their bodies. And again, uh, I won't rehearse this too much because we've already talked about it earlier, but this is where you really want to help your child learn to physically steward well the body that God has given to them. So again, things like diet, sleep, exercise, helping them get outside, helping them get some vitamin D, helping them get some fresh air, getting them to talk about their feelings and emotions. Uh, there's a dynamic in counseling that we call effect labeling, effect labeling. And it is a proven way that we can lessen anxiety and feelings that are unsettling simply by naming them and talking them out. Uh, the way that I kind of describe it is imagine that in your child's heart or in their mind is this like tangled ball of yarn. And that part of your role as a parent is simply moving towards them in faithfulness and just kind of pulling one string at a time, just drawing them out. Just simply saying things like, I'm anxious, I'm overwhelmed, uh, empirically has been proven to help a child's uh, overall mental health. I've also included some links there for you on different breathing and grounding exercises. Uh, when you find that your child is very dysregulated or uh, maybe they're really anxious, uh, parents, I will tell you, that is not the time to, to give them a sermon about anxiety. Uh, that's not a time to give them, you know, five to-do points. It's not a time to say, well, if you had just done what I told you, or if you had just turned in that exam, uh, when your child is hyper-escalated and uh, not regulating their emotions right, you need to help them come back to a sense of their present self and in their present environment. And uh, a breathing exercise and a grounding exercise can be helpful towards that. I've included a link there for you that on the electronic handout you can click to, but um, uh, a colleague of mine named Eliza Huey has a whole breathing exercise that you can do with your children um, that's really helpful where uh, you help the child navigate through a 5-4-3-2-1 exercise. 5-4-3-2-1 exercises are really common grounding or breathing exercise uh, where you might say, okay, what are five things that you can see right now? Tell me four things that you can hear right now. Tell me three things that you can feel right now. Give me two things that you can taste. Give me one thing that you can smell. And what it does is it simply grounds your child in the presence and helps them regulate uh, their, uh, their, what essentially is their parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, and what Eliza has done is she has brought the gospel to bear into this. And so one of the things that she does is she encourages you to ask your child, what are five things we know to be true about God? Uh, what are four attributes of God that can help us in this time of trouble? Uh, what are three people in your life that God's placed you in? And she just, again, walks you through that. There's a book that's coming out from that exercise that's not out yet. I just talked to her the other day and said, when's that book coming out? She said it's not coming out until May, uh, but I included that link there for you. Uh, you can go onto Amazon and pre-order that. The book's called Count Yourself Calm. Uh, taking big feelings to a big God. So just would really encourage you to, to, to check out those resources. And just as we close out this portion of our conference, I've included uh, my own information. If you're on social media, uh, I try to use social media as wisely and thoughtfully as I can, but give me a follow on Instagram in particular. 
Uh, I do different Q&As on different mental health issues. Uh, you can go back into some of my story highlights and uh, have a whole uh, story highlight on depression and anxiety in children in some different resources. You can click through that. And so uh, I try to use my social media in a way that can be a helpful resource. Uh, also in your packet, you'll realize there's also a number of different resources there for you uh, that I want to entrust over to you. Obviously the books that have been provided for you out in the foyer are, are my go-to recommendations. And as Pastor Andrew and the team here, we're thinking through what would be most helpful to you on this list. Those books out there really represent some of the best, but uh, there are so many different things uh, on this list. There's some videos, there's some exercises, some different tools that, again, I would encourage you uh, to take a look at as you seek to, to help your child, your teen, and then also yourself uh, navigate through some of these issues. So just want to say thank you again for your time and your attention. You guys have been a very kind and a very patient audience. And uh, my prayer is that when people leave something like this, that at the end of the day, you don't leave saying, oh man, like Jonathan was really great. I hope that what you leave here from is an increased confidence in Christ and what he has to say to us in his word. So that's the biggest compliment you can give to me is uh, I'm going to be pointed more towards Christ, not something that, that I said. Uh, so that's my hope and my prayer for you as we close out our time. So let's pray. Father, we come to you uh, at the close of this portion of our time. And Lord, uh, we have really seen uh, in so many different places and in so many different instances where uh, you are a God who is keenly aware of what is going on in our world and in our hearts and in our relationships. Uh, Lord, you are a God who sees and who hears and who knows, but is not just content to do those things, but consistently moves towards us. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, you're not afraid to get into the mess of our struggles and even our sin, uh, but into the mess of all of those different experiences you sent your son Christ to redeem and to reconcile us back to you, that we can be in a relationship with you and that in that relationship with you, we can go and make disciples then of all the nations. And so Lord, when we think about that and we think in particular about our families today, Lord, I pray that you would equip and encourage us to do that with a loved one here today, to do it with our spouse, our sibling, a neighbor, a fellow church member, our children. Um, Lord, would you equip us and encourage and sustain us uh, for that work. And uh, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.